Bill, if you don't mind pulling that door shut too, that'd be great. Thank you. All right, let's go and get started this morning. Uh, Father, we give you thanks for um, the Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people, to be with one another, to be even more importantly with you. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit would dwell with us this morning, um, that you would minister to us in word and sacrament as we worship together very soon, and that you would even prepare us for that worship, Father, as we continue to study your word together, even this morning, that you would give us wisdom and insight by your spirit um, to understand these things um, that your son has taught us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so just a, a brief sort of announcement. You'll see this in your um, insert in your order of worship this morning. Um, next week, we'll be beginning two new adult Sunday school classes. So today we'll end this sort of brief series on New Testament prophecy and preterism um, as we've looked at the Olivet Discourse especially. <clears throat> and so next week um, here in the sanctuary, I'll be starting a new class on the Ten Commandments um, where we'll just be walking through the Ten Commandments uh, one by one and thinking about the implications, um, why these Ten Commandments are at the heart of God's law for His people, um, why um, the law is important um, for us, um, why it's not just a part of the scriptures that we should overlook or ignore, but is actually a way in which God reveals his heart to us. Um, so we'll just do it, you know, the, as the sort of pattern of how I've thought about adult Sunday school, you know, we've wanted in the spring especially to focus on the scriptures. And so um, I have, uh, you know, I've gone through book by book the entire Bible. We did that for three semesters in a row, sort of three years in a row in the spring. Uh, last year we did an in-depth exposition of an epistle, of James's epistle, um, and now this, this spring we'll be looking at a different genre, a different part of the Old Testament, um, the law, um, which is, you know, not always a place where people go, but that's where we. Um, there's also going to be a second class happening, though, that I want you to know about, so I'm going to give Patrick a chance to stand up and say something real quick about the class that he's going to be teaching. Sure. I'm going to be teaching a class. That's great. So Patrick will be teaching that class upstairs in the upper room, and I'll be down here, and you all are welcome to choose one or the other or go back and forth, whatever you want to do. Um, I just want to give you know, more opportunities for us to grow as a church in our understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures and these things together. So um, with that in mind, and if you have questions about any of those classes, talk to Patrick or I, and we can you know, flesh out more what we're planning on doing. Um, with those things in mind, let's now spend a few minutes today um, uh, continuing to talk about um, uh, the Olivet Discourse in particular. Uh, this morning in our sermon, in a, in a little bit, um, we'll be looking at Mark 13, verses 1 and 2, um, where Jesus prophesies about the destruction of the temple and think together about um, how uh, shocking, how astounding that was in the context of the first century that Jesus would just sort of, um, you know, the disciples are or walking, and one of the disciples says, look, what a wonderful building, uh, teacher. Um, what wonderful stones. And Jesus just says, yeah, those wonderful buildings, I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. Like just this, just, you know, no preamble, no big thing. Just, yeah, that's not going to be around much longer, guys. Uh, just FYI. 
And then, of course, the Olivet Discourse flows out of that. So, so next Sunday, we'll look more closely at the Olivet Discourse itself in our sermon where the disciples come and say, what, was, what just happened <laughs> like five minutes ago, right? When we're, once they get out of the temple, they go to Mount Olivet, they, they go to Jesus and say, what, you just said that, and we're just, you know, it's really sinking in now that you just said the temple would be destroyed. What, what did you mean by that? And what are the signs of that coming. Um, and so today, just to prepare us and give more context for that Olivet Discourse specifically, I just want to walk us through Mark 13 in some detail. Um, we're not going to be able to go into this much detail in our Sunday sermon um, next week, but I want to do as much detail as I can in our time together to sort of present to you um, my, um, my take, my interpretive Um, understanding of the scripture here that Jesus gives in Mark 13, especially his teaching regarding the Olivet Discourse, um, regarding the the, what will take place in around the destruction of the temple. Um, It's important to say this, it's interesting, this is one of the longest, um, probably the longest actually, sustained teaching that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. And there's one, that one section of parables that Jesus tells in Mark 4, um, uh, where you get, you know, you get some parables back to back, but but this is, you know, a, for, the, for Mark especially, this is, uh, Mark 13, a really long extended period of Jesus' own words that were given. And we want to take that seriously and want to pay attention to them um, and what he's saying. Um, so, as I said, the context for the Olivet Discourse, quote-unquote, Mark 13, is Jesus' prediction to his disciples that the temple will be destroyed. Um, and it's provoked by this question in Mark 13, verse 4. Uh, 13, 5 through 13:37 is this long block of teaching that we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. And it's all provoked by this question, right? The disciples, they've just heard Jesus come to him, or just heard Jesus as they're walking out of the temple say that it's going to be destroyed. And then they come back and they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, I just think in terms of contextually to understand this chapter properly, um, we have to see there that it's clear that by that question, the disciples are not asking, tell us, Jesus, when will the end of the world come and what will be the sign of it? it's approaching, right? That's not what's, just just reading the Bible as as a book of literature, like we would read any book of literature. That's just simply not, what they mean by that question. Clearly what they mean is what Jesus had just said, which is, look at these wonderful buildings, pointing at the buildings of the temple. I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. They go to him in response to that statement and ask, when will these things be? Meaning, what, when will the stones of the temple be thrown down? And what will be the sign that it's about to happen, that that is going to take place? So that, I think that contextual understanding is just so important as we come to Mark 13 to really see that, that, that for the, the men who asked the question, the last thing on their mind at that point was, you know, the Middle East and some global po- po- geopolitical struggle or, you know, Armageddon, quote-unquote, or whatever it is that you want to fill in the blank with. Um, they were asking about a very specific prophecy that Jesus had just made about the literal destruction of the temple they had been in half an hour before, right? Um, and that, that's where their minds were. That's where their expectations were. That's what they understood Jesus 
to be telling them about, um, about the temple they had just been in the middle of being torn down. And that is the context for the rest of this chapter. Um, So Jesus is asked, when will these things be? And I think he gives a direct answer to that question. In verse 30, he says, and most of the teaching of the Mount Olivet Discourse is focused on the signs, right? The things that will precede the destruction of the temple. Um, but he does actually give a very pretty specific answer, at least a time span, um, to that question. When will this take place? He says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, that phrase, this generation, is, of course, a very common phrase in the scriptures. It's used again and again. And it's used almost entirely always as a literal description of 40 years, right? One, the time it takes for someone to, who's middle-aged to grow to the end of their life and to die, basically. And for a, a baby that's born to grow up and to become a fully uh, middle-aged adult. One generation, one sort of turning of the clock, so to speak. And of course, you see this all throughout in many different places in the scriptures. Um, People who want to, this is a really difficult verse for people who want to take the Olivet Discourse to refer to the end of the world, because it requires understanding this generation to mean something other than the people who were alive at the time that Jesus lived, right? And so you see people trying to do all sorts of things with that statement. Well, this generation must mean just people who opposed Jesus, right? This generation and their apostasy, it must just mean, generally speaking, Uh, people who are objecting to Jesus or are wicked, the wickedness of humanity and its opposition to God will not pass away until um, the end comes, right? Until the the end of the world. Um, And I I would just say, I suppose maybe that's possible, but it seems to me that to be a, you know, a a kind of special pleading, a kind of uh, a way of avoiding what seems to me to be the very clear, simple, understanding of what Jesus means by this generation. Yes, sir. Yeah, some people, yeah, some people are trying to make it to an ethnic thing where it's actually speaking about somehow the, the, the nation of Israel in some way will not pass away. Yeah, that's true. That's another interpretive sort of move that people make. Yeah. But I think, again, a, a not helpful one. Yeah. So I just want to give you that context, and now I just want to walk through, let's just actually look at the signs that Jesus talks about and ask, what might he be talking about if we take this premise that Jesus is talking about um, not the end of the world that's somewhere off in the distant future, but actually um, something that will take place in the next 40 years before the destruction of the temple, before this generation passes away. So I just want to just very simply, I've put the verses there. You can look at, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up and walk through with me, or you can just read off the handout. Uh, Verse by verse, I've tried to pull out all the sort of major signs that Jesus talks about and show you essentially just what I, at least how I understand uh, what Jesus means. So verses 7 and 8, Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We've talked about this already um, as we've thought about this time period, but the period before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, was characterized by innumerable conflicts. It was a, it was a, a deeply um, violent and, and time period that was full of a lot of what Jesus is describing, 
rebellions, wars, guerrilla warfare, zealots trying to push off Rome, um, people fighting even within the nation of Israel for power uh, and, and prominence. Um, uh, uh, and, and so this, this is exactly what we see it takes place. A lot of violent conflicts between Israel and Rome that culminate in the Jewish rebellion in 66 AD, where as we've talked about, um, um, Jerusalem is briefly liberated um, from Roman rule. Um, there's a brief period of success, so to speak, militarily, um, by the soldiers of Israel, uh, the, the zealots at that time, but ends, of course, in, in the Roman armies coming in full force and putting um, them to death. So clearly, that, that at least fits. And of course, there are other periods in the world that have had wars and rumors of war, but certainly that expe- was especially true of that period um, during that generation that would come. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, Jesus says. Uh, Josephus, Josephus is an important Jewish historian of the first century um, who was an eyewitness to this period of time um, and, and wrote about it. And you can you know, go online or um, find on Amazon the works of Josephus and read directly his words and translation about his, his, what he observed in the first century about what happened in Israel, and he's got a, it's a very interesting, he's, he's not a Christian, um, but he has very interesting perspectives on everything that took place during that time. So Josephus records both famines and earthquakes in Israel during this time. This was something that was taking place. Now, of course, famines and earthquakes in some ways is not a, you know, super specific <laughs> sign. There are famines and earthquakes in many places um, throughout human history. But it is important to say that these kinds of things were taking place. And of course, that's part of the attraction for um, people who want to use this as an indicator of, um, you know, the end times, quote unquote. Well, there are, always, there are a lot of wars, right? There are famines, um, there are earthquakes, but to some extent, right, these are pretty general kinds of things that take place in human history. Um, uh, but certainly they were taking place in that time period in a concentrated way, I would say, even, um, if we look at the historical record. Um, then Jesus begins to get to be a little more specific. And I think it's interesting here where the, the specificity actually is helpful. He says, they will deliver you. And who's the you there that he's talking to? The disciples, right? The apostles and the other followers of Jesus that are putting their trust in him, right? That will soon... Um, uh, see his resurrection and be sent out as his witnesses. They will be baptized with the Holy Spirit um, and be sent out. He says they will deliver you, right? And he's not, and the, the clearest meaning of you there is the people that he's speaking to, not they will deliver, you know, future disciples of mine um, over to councils. No, they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Now, what do we find in the book of Acts? We find these events specifically taking place, right? Um, the, the men to whom Jesus spoke on that day, those literal men and others that would very shortly come into um, Jesus' kingdom, um, they would be delivered over to councils. They would be beaten in synagogues. They would stand before governors and kings for Jesus' sake. Of course, Paul is the most prominent example of the fulfillment of this, right? The book of Acts is basically a story of him being delivered over to councils, being beaten in synagogues, and standing before governors and kings. Like, 
That's just sort of Paul's life in the book of Acts over and over again. Um, And I think it's especially interesting that Jesus talks about being beaten in synagogues because after 70 AD, something happened with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was that Jewish synagogues and Jewish people lost power in the Roman Empire. And they no longer had the capability to persecute the church in the way that they had done for 40 years, right? For 40 years, there was this time where where the Christians were not the ones in power. The Christians were the quote-unquote, you know, embattled minority. And Jews, who had were not only in Jerusalem, but all over the Roman Empire, had money, had power, had influence. And they used that money and power influence according uh, to Acts, according to uh, the epistles, um, largely to persecute Christians. And these things actually took place, right? Paul talks about um, the ways in which he was brought before synagogues and, and beaten. We, we see this with Peter and John early in Acts, that they're uh, beaten after preaching the gospel and healing the man um, in the temple um, after Jesus' resurrection. Um, but after 70 AD, this doesn't happen anymore, right? This is not something that takes place because synagogues were no longer places of power and influence where where Jews, Jewish leaders could do whatever they wanted, um, suddenly they lost power, they lost influence, and they were not able to execute persecution against Christians in the same kind of way. So I think that's just a very interesting, the specificity of that prediction and the fact that after 70 AD, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the capacity to carry that out was lost is a pretty interesting connection, I think, as you think about the timing. Any questions so far? Yeah, Eric. Right. Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. Yeah, so historically we know that that Israel and um, Jerusalem and the Jews, Jewish people in general, did enjoy some special protections under Rome and even liberties, even ability to do certain things. Yeah, and that was lost, obviously, um, after they decided to rebel against Rome and try to free themselves from Roman rule. Yes, sir. I'm sorry. Yes, ma'am. Kathina. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, simply put, I don't think that that's a fair reading of the text. Um, I don't think as we just consider conceptually the mindset of the Jewish mindset in general um, and the, uh, the particular context of that, what's happening in, the, in Matthew or in the Gospels in general at that time. It would not, the question about the end of the world, the end of the space-time continuum, um, those are not questions that would have been a part of the vocabulary or the, um, the expectation of the Jewish men there who are asking that question. So I, I understand what you're saying. I have, you know, obviously that's, that is an interpretive thing that people try to do. Matthew does record a slightly different question, but I don't think it's a, a substantively different question than what 
mark records. Um, I would say it's a different, a different way of recording the same question, essentially. Um, and the parousia that's referred to, um, which is the coming, does not refer, in my view, to uh, Jesus' last coming on the, you know, the, the end of time, so to speak, but his coming um, to execute what he had just predicted, um, which was the destruction of the temple. So that's, that's in brief, that's how I would answer that. So, but yeah, certainly something to think about. Yes, ma'am. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And I think they would have understood that, that if the temple was going to go away, that would be the end of an age. That would be the end of an era, um, so to speak, in redemptive history. And that, that's what they were asking about, in my view, not, yeah, tell us about the destruction of the temple and tell us also about, you know, um, some distant event far off in the future that we don't really expect that we'll experience or see. But we want to know about that too. That seems to me to be a, a real stretch. Yeah, John. Right. Same kind of statement. Right. Yes. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. Yeah, they're they're not only asking about Jesus's specific prophecy that he had just given about the destruction of the temple explicitly, but yeah, things like the parable of the tenants. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The parable of the tenants. We I preached on that a month ago or so, uh, where Jesus says. Um, I tell you what will happen to these men who kill the beloved son of the owner of the vineyard. He will come and he will destroy them and he will take their kingdom and give it to another. So yeah, certainly that's also something that is in the context in view of what the disciples are also asking about that event. They may even, may even have linked in their minds, oh, Jesus said that in the parable. And then you know, an hour or two later, he said uh, this about um, the destruction of the temple. You know, those things probably fit together. And I think clearly they do. Um, that, that that's what Jesus has been talking about. So and I think that's really, that's part of the whole context of this is Jesus again and again in all of the Gospels, um, the Synoptic Gospels at least, that record these specific events, um, what he's been doing has been predicting judgment against the leadership of Israel and the people that are he's talking to at that time, Right? He, there's no indication in any of the parables or teaching that has taken place that day that Jesus has been alluding to the end of the world, that he's been alluding to um, you know, what we would refer to as the apocalypse or something. So it would be, be very odd, I think, contextually for the disciples to come and say, tell us about everything you've been talking about today, and then also we'd like to hear about your second coming. Um, throw that in there too. Um, that, to me, that just is not a fair reading of the text. Um, and so that's, yeah, so that, those are all good things to think about. All right, so let's continue to try to deal with some of these 
specific signs that Jesus gives. Jesus says, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, right, in verse 10. Um, In my view, this is not a literal reference to every nation and tongue that that the gospel had to go forward to, you know, the people of, uh, you know, wherever, um, North America or Australia or something, Um, but rather um, that this refers to largely the Roman world, the world that um, uh, the disciples were familiar with, um, the Lord, the world that you know, Jesus, at least according to his human nature, um, dwelled in and had familiarity with himself. Um, Paul himself, actually, it's interesting, uses this kind of language to describe the spread of the gospel in his time. Um, you know, just a few decades later, uh, Paul would write to the Colossians and say, the gospel, right, the good news about Jesus, which has come to you in Colossae, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And he talks about the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Um, and there clearly Paul is not referring to, you know, I mean, he even at that point still wants to go to Spain. Um, there are places that he even wants to go with the gospel. But he's also comfortable saying this gospel has been proclaimed to the whole world, to the entire creation. And what he's referring to there is the Roman world, right? He's referring to that sort of culture that he was inhabiting um, not just one culture, but one overarching sort of world that, that was characterized by a common language and a common sort of system of, of, of culture. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The Pentecost event is really interesting in this, in the way that, just practically speaking, there's a sense in which this is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost because of all of the Jews who were there for the Feast of Pentecost who were coming in from all these different tongues and languages. And that's right. Yeah, exactly. That's a great connection to that as well. So again, I don't want to you know, argue too much about this right now, but I just want to say this is how I'm taking it. This, this, is what I, this, is how I, this is how this sign fits in for me into the overall premise that I have about the chapter. Uh, The next sign, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the precise fulfillment of this phrase is widely debated, and I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to speculate too much about exactly what this refers to. I think it's hard to tie this to a a really specific historical event. Clearly, it's a, it, it has a connection with Daniel, and Daniel talks about abomination of desolation. I think it has something to do with, um, with a, 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 sacrilegious religious act, a sacrilegious act that takes place in Jerusalem or in Israel at some time. Um, but people debate all this. Does this just mean uh, the Roman armies coming up to Jerusalem? Is that what the abomination of desolation is? Is it something that actually took place in the temple itself? either perpetrated by Rome, or perhaps some people say, maybe this is something, we know that the Zealots, when they took over Jerusalem in 66 to 70, basically, um, they actually put to death, um, or, or at least put out the, the current high priest and put in their own, they, they felt like the, you know, the leadership of Israel at that time was overly cozy with Rome, and so they put in their own um, uh, high priest in his place, and there was, there was violence and murder that was taking place in the temple, apparently, and around the temple courts as the zealots took over the city. 
and establish their own kingdom, basically, right? That was a power shift, not only in relationship to Rome, but also in relationship to the sort of current leadership of Israel at that time. So perhaps it refers to something that took place there. I'm not going to be overly dogmatic about what exactly, I'm I'm not going to say I can stand here and tell you, I know exactly what the abomination of desolation was. But it was going to be something shocking, something that was going to um, be... uh, understandable, or at least it would, would have made sense when they saw it, so to speak, um, uh, the, the disciples and the Christians who were there. Um, and in and, and my view, it clearly refers to a past event that indicates the impending destruction of Jerusalem, not the end of the world. Um, interestingly, um, the fourth century historian um, Eusebius says, before the Jewish war, that is that war from 66 to 70, the people of the church of Jerusalem were bidden in an oracle given by revelation to men worthy of it to depart from the city and to dwell in a city of Perea called Pella. To, to it, those who believed in Christ migrated from Jerusalem. So um, Eusebius at least records that Christians did leave Jerusalem um, shortly before everything fell apart, so to speak. Everything um, went bad. And they did that because they understood the time is drawing near. Um, which I think is an interesting thing. Um, and it's also worth saying, we'll talk about this more in a second, but what is, what is the, uh, the response to be for those who are in Judea when they see this abomination of desolation? Where are they supposed to go? Now, does that make sense if an army is going to come and tear down a city, that you go hide out in the mountains? Yeah, that makes sense, right? Does that make sense if the Lord Jesus is going to come in his flesh and judge the living and the dead and raise the dead to life? And rema- I mean, what's the point, right? I mean, I think we are, like, take that seriously. Why would he say flee to the mountains if he's speaking about his second coming, right? Um, but if he's speaking about a bunch of Roman soldiers with spears who are going to be killing a lot of people, the mountains makes a lot of sense, right? That'd be a good place to go um, to be safe and secure. Um, so just just... Think about that, and think about that also in the context of Jesus' instructions about what they should do after they see the abomination of desolation. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Now, I think clearly Jesus is talking about a a physical um, danger that is going to come to people that he wants them to get out of the way of, right? If, if we know that Jesus is about to come back, what difference does it make if I go back and get my cloak or if, I, uh, if it happens in winter or not or if, you know, I'm a nursing mother or pregnant? But if, I, if, if the armies are coming and I have to travel, right, I don't want it to be cold. I want there to be food. I don't want to have to be carrying a baby if I don't have to. Um, you know, these kinds of things make a lot more sense. Yeah, Scott. Yeah. Right. So that's astounding. That's that's consistency. That is. Um, wow. Um, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that's um, in some ways, I don't even know how to, you know, 
fully process that. Um, but but uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, I mean, and that is, a, I mean, this is part of why we want to think about prophecy carefully, right? Um, because it, it does, and that's, that's an extreme example, but I think we probably all have less extreme examples of either decisions we've made or decisions that people we know have made in response to what they thought were sort of literal interpretations um, of prophecy that turned out to be incorrect, right? And we could all talk about the 80s. The 80s, this is the world that I grew up in as a child, right? You know, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988, uh, the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Um, you know, people really constructed lives around their understanding of specific events. And it is, it is it's a, in some ways, it's really sad because, as I spoke about last week, it's part of the reason it's sad is because the Christian life, friends, is not found in reading the tea leaves. Like, it's just not. The Christian life is found in mercy and love and faithfulness and laying down your life for your family and loving your neighbor and, you know, being part of a church where you receive the means of grace. Like, that's, that's what the Christian life is. And I think that's part of why, it's, for me, it's such a tragedy at times when people get so deeply into this thing that think, well, this, the, seek, this, the Christian life is some sort of secret knowledge that I need to make sure I don't miss. Um, and it has really tragic results, I think, sometimes. Um, let, me, um, let me keep going, and I'll try to take some questions at the end. I just want to make sure I at least get through all this in terms of showing you what I think these things mean. So here's an interesting sign that sometimes is challenging. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, so all the wars and rumors of war and the famine and the earthquakes and the, the different things that will take place. After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now here's what I want to say about this. It is common if you read the Old Testament and you read the prophets and the men to whom Jesus was speaking would have done that, would have known the prophets, would have known the language of Isaiah, would have known the language of the other prophets. If you read those prophets, you see that it's common in the Old Testament to refer to the fall of even pagan nations and empires with astronomical imagery, right? So Isaiah 13.10. Isaiah is speaking um, by the inspiration of the Spirit, referring to the destruction of Babylon that would come through the Medes and the Persians. Right, an event that would happen, you know, I don't know, 100 years or so in his future. And this is how he describes it. He says, The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. Joel also uses similar language. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. You see this actually in many places in Old Testament prophecy that specifically astronomical imagery, imagery of sun and moon and stars being darkened and not giving light is a part of how the prophets speak about nations falling, right? Nations that once had prominence and authority, that authority and prominence being taken away as a direct act of judgment by God. Um, and of course, what Isaiah prophesied came to pass. We read about it in the book of Daniel, that the Medes and the Persians came and they defeated the Babylonian Empire, and they took over. Now, on that night, when, you know, Belshazzar and Daniel were doing their thing, and the handwriting was on the wall, and Darius showed up, 
did all this, like, did the, did the stars in the heavens stop shining? Did the sun be dark when it rose? Was the moon not? No, that's not, that didn't literally take place, right? That was a prophecy, a prophetic imagery of the transition from the power that God had entrusted to Babylon now being transferred to the Medes and the Persians, which actually would be really important, redemptive historically, because Cyrus would send home the Jews, right, to, to Jerusalem. Um, so these prophecies, I would say, don't refer to literal astronomical events, but rather a symbolic imagery used to describe the change in ruling authorities that are brought about by the hand of the Lord, right? Because when the Lord comes in judgment to the earth, those who are once high will be brought down, those who are, who are low will be brought up, right? This is what Mary says. This is about, she says, this is what's going to happen with the baby I'm about to have. Um, and indeed, that took place. Um, it's interesting, I think the biblical prophecy uses this kind of imagery to describe the transition of authority because that they had learned from the Lord in Genesis that that's what the sun and the moon and the stars were for, right? And Genesis 1 says, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser, night, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. It's very interesting as we, we don't have time to get into this in a deep way, but in Genesis, God says not that he made... Um, the sun and the moon to necessarily give light, but to rule, to have authority in some way over the, the time, the passing of time, which is really interesting. And just to, something to think about, as you think about this imagery, why the, the scriptures use it to describe the fall and rise of nations, just think for a minute about all the nations of the earth and the flags and how many of them have suns and stars and moons on their flags. Right? It's by far the most prominent thing that the nations of the world use to assert their independence and their authority and their identity, right? including our own, right? 50 stars. Right? Um, but, you know, the UK does that, Japan does that, China does that, um, Australia does that, a um, bunch of Middle Eastern nations use crescent moon. I mean, just, you know, you just start running through the list and you see, like, it's all over. And I just think that's interesting. It's just interesting. Um, I think there's something, there's something about that connection between the sun and the moon and the stars and what it means and authority and those sorts of things. So I would say that Jesus here is not talking about a literal darkness that is going to come, that the stars are going to fall out of the heavens, that the moon is going to go away, but that that's a picture of the transition that's going to happen as, as what he talked about in that parable of the tenets, that the kingdom that had once been given to Israel is going to be taken from them and given to another, right? It's going to be taken away and given um, to the faithful Israelite, to Jesus and those who are united to him. Um, and then this statement, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. I don't think this referred here to a literal appearance of Jesus in the flesh. Um, often in the biblical prophecy, again, the Lord is said to be coming to the earth when, when judgment comes at the hand of God. Um, this does not mean that God will literally appear when that judgment comes, but that what takes place is due to his personal will, his personal decision. For example, Isaiah 19. Isaiah prophesies regarding Egypt and judgment that will come soon on Egypt. He says, Behold, Yahweh is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble, at his presence. Does this mean that, that Yahweh actually showed up riding on clouds? 
when judgment came to Egypt? No, it means that the Lord used the armies of Babylon at that time to judge Egypt because of their wickedness and their sin, right? Um, uh, Zechariah uses similar language. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That's not a literal sort of description of what's going to take place. It's a picture of the Lord coming in judgment um, through his providential ruling of the world. Um, you can read this kind of language in Psalm 18, right? David says that the Lord comes on the clouds and he will deliver me. Did he really expect that the Lord was going to show up riding on clouds to deliver him from Saul? No, but he expected that the Lord would providentially deliver him from Saul. Um, and that's, but he's comfortable using that kind of language. Remember, Jesus himself tells the high priest, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He said that to the high priest on the night before his death, right? Now, did that high priest literally see Jesus coming on the clouds, seated at the right hand? No, I think we can say he didn't see that. But what he did witness was that Jesus coming in judgment by way of the Roman armies, um, that that actually did take place. That is how he saw Jesus coming and these things taking place. Um, and then Jesus' reference to the sending of the angels. Um, remember, angels in the Bible can refer to <clears throat> angelic beings, but also can refer to simply messengers or those who declare the gospel. I think here it probably is the latter. <clears throat> the sending of angels and the gathering of the elect likely refers to the way in which the gospel will then go forward with new power after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD with the validation, the public confirmations we talked about last week of Jesus's authority as a true prophet of God, uh, with the elimination of the Jewish, Old Testament Jewish religion as an option um, for people, um, with the end of Jewish persecution of the church, which limited its power in those first 40 years, then after 70 AD, then the gospel would really go forward and truly the elect would be, begin to be gathered from every um, part of the world, of the four corners of the earth, so to speak. And that, historically, is exactly what happened. If you read, you know, stories about the growth of the early church, I mean, it's astounding um, to think that this tiny little Jewish sect, basically, um, within 300 years, took over the Roman Empire, right? I mean, it's, it's an astounding story. I, you should read Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. It's a great book that sort of looks at the spread of Christianity from a, from a historical and sociological perspective. I mean, just even just let's leave the Christian part out of it. Like, it's just one of the most remarkable historical things that's ever happened in the world, um, the rise of Christianity and the way that it went from so few to so many um, in such a short length of time. So in any case, I think that's what Jesus is referring to there. And then, of course, there's that time reference in 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. In my view, the plain meaning of the statement is that Jesus expected all that he prophesied in Mark 13 to take place before this generation passed away, before 40 years uh, went by. And in my view, there's no reason from the text itself, we can, I think, import other reasons or have other assumptions that we read into the text, but... I don't think there's any reason from the actual words of the text itself or from the historical record, as far as we know it, to not believe that what Jesus said would take place within 40 years indeed happened and took place. All right.
I've given you a lot to think about, and I don't have time for really hardly any questions. But hopefully this is helpful just as a summary of the, at least the position that I'm articulating. As I've stated before, that book, The Last Days According to Jesus by R.C. Sproul is a great resource. Um, there are other resources I'm sure I could direct you towards if you're interested in thinking more about this. Um, but but I, yeah, I just would encourage, I know this may be new or strange or unusual, I don't know. Um, and if it is, I would just encourage you just to think about it, you know, just to, just to consider it, just sit on it for a little bit and really consider if, if this might be um, uh, a more faithful way of understanding um, this part of the scriptures. So, all right, let me, let's invite, I'm going to invite us to stand and pray as we prepare for worship. Father, we're grateful for um, the way that you um, have truly spoken through your son. Um, not only in his life, death, and resurrection, but even in the very words that he spoke. Father, we hear your voice. And I pray that we would ponder these things, Father, even this part of the scriptures that is certainly more challenging and, and less clear than other parts of the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would give us hearts that would seek out uh, truth, um, that would be open to your spirit, that we would be diligent and that we would study um, even this part of your scriptures. Uh, that we might grow in wisdom and understanding. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.